Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, international condemnation as Belarus uses a military jet to force a passenger plane to land so an opponent of the country's regime can be arrested. A shocking assault on civil aviation and an assault on international law. It represents a danger to civilian flights everywhere. After the pandemic, can governments learn from the military to prepare for the next global emergency? No lessons were learned. And then when, when a pandemic appeared, there was absolutely no expertise, no preparation in how to handle it. That's why we had such chaos. And how a psychedelic drug could change the lives of veterans with PTSD. Shell shock's been there since the First World War. No one has made a dent on it. I simply can't believe that, that people in Britain are not going to say our guys have got and girls have got to have this. For a brief moment last year, it looked like time was up for the man dubbed Europe's last dictator. But despite the demonstrations, Alexander Lukashenko is clearly still in charge in Belarus. Apparently, he personally ordered what's been described as the state-sponsored hijacking of a Ryanair flight. Opposition journalist Roman Protasevich was dragged off the plane, sparking a furious international reaction. In a moment, we'll speak to a former British ambassador in Belarus. First, Paul Osborne reports on the extraordinary events of the past few days. 171 passengers were on board Ryanair Flight 4978 when it set off from Athens last Sunday morning, but Belarusian authorities were only really interested in one of them. So when the plane was ordered to land in Minsk rather than its destination, Vilnius in Lithuania, that passenger knew what was coming. He said nothing. He just turned to people and said he was facing the death penalty. He was nervous at first, but later when he understood he couldn't change anything, he calmed down and accepted it. That man was Roman Protasevich, a journalist whose challenges to the increasingly autocratic rule of Alexander Lukashenko saw him flee Belarus for exile in Lithuania two years ago. Now he's in detention in Minsk, where he has supposedly confessed to organising mass disturbances a crime that could land him with 15 years in jail. A shocking assault on civil aviation and an assault on international law. It represents a danger to civilian flights everywhere. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab. I know the whole House will join me in condemning unequivocally this reprehensible action under the Lukashenko regime. The UK will stand firm in protecting freedom of the media, upholding international law, maintaining the safety of international civil aviation. The EU followed the UK in banning Belarusian planes and telling airlines to avoid the country's airspace. President Biden called it outrageous. White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki. It constitutes a brazen affront to international peace and security by the regime. We demand an immediate, international, transparent and credible investigation of this incident. We are in touch with a range of partners bilaterally and through multilateral channels from NATO, the OSCE, UN, EU and others. This is, by any standard, an extraordinary sequence of events. A fighter jet was scrambled to force the Ryanair plane to land after a seemingly spurious bomb threat. The airline called it an act of aviation piracy. It does seem to be a clear breach of the first freedom of the air, the right to overfly countries, though that's something Belarus never actually signed up to. This is the latest twist in a saga which began with last year's elections, widely believed to have been rigged. 
Mr Lukashenko, whose rule Belarus since 1994, had opposition figures arrested and police dragging protesters off the streets. Now nobody feels safe. No in Belarus, no abroad, I mean, from Belarusian people. And the same as uh, people from other countries who accidentally uh, may uh, be at the same uh, flight. Exiled opposition leader Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. We are sure that it was uh, because of direct order of uh, Lukashenko himself, because he considered uh, Roman to be, to be his uh, like private enemy. And uh, so as he made possible this uh, operation fulfilled, so... Uh, it couldn't be done without direct order. Roman Protasevich's father fears his son is being tortured and his mother has begged world leaders to save him. I just want to say that my son is simply a hero, simply a hero. I truly hope that the international community will rise up for him. I hope so much for that. It's very hard for us right now, very hard. For Tom Tugendhat, who chairs the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, this is a key test for Western powers. I would like to see the uh, governments turning to the International Court of Justice and making it absolutely clear to Mr Lukashenko that he is personally responsible for the threat of violence against the civilian aircraft in direct violation of the Chicago Agreement on Civil Aviation, and that he is personally liable for the protection and well-being of Roman Pratasevich. Few in the aviation sector can remember anything like this happening before. Whether it ever happens again depends in part on what steps the West is willing to take and whether Belarus is willing to respond to international pressure. Paul Osborne with that report. Well, joining me now is John Everard, who was Britain's ambassador in Belarus in the mid-1990s as Alexander Lukashenko was first taking power. John Everard, good to speak to you. Unchecked, this sets a terrifying precedent that any authoritarian leader can force a passenger jet to land and they can grab whoever they want. Absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the what Lukashenko has done is utterly reprehensible in its own right, but the repercussions are possibly even more serious. Beyond uh, the, the, the threat you just said, I think is the fear. Are Western airlines now going to feel safe overflying, say, Russia, say, China? Uh, how confident are we that other authoritarian regimes are not going to take a leaf out of Lukashenko's book and do exactly the same? The Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab says it's very difficult to believe that Russia hadn't at least acquiesced to what happened in Minsk. What do you think Moscow's attitude will be? I'm not at all sure that I agree with Raab. I think the whole thing happened really quite quickly. Uh, the whole operation has signs of haste and muddle over it. I suspect this was pure Lukashenko and that uh, Putin only found out what was going on after the event. Russian reaction? It was interesting that for 24 hours after the, shall we call it a hijack, the Russian media were almost silent. There was nothing about the uh, the incident on Russian radio news. It was only on Tuesday that uh, uh, the, the radio started to report this. And they were reporting quite freely. Clearly, the line from the Kremlin was, you know, we are fed up with Belarus, uh, we, the Kremlin, will issue a short statement. And you've seen that says simply that they, the Kremlin has no reason to disbelieve statements by uh, the Belarusian government. Uh, but the media have been given fairly free reign to criticise Lukashenko's action. So for this morning, for example, uh, Russian radio listeners were treated to quite a thoughtful interview uh, where they, they played 
Lukashenko's amazing speech to his parliament, uh, claiming he was acting as a hero. But then uh, they allowed a couple of commentators in who were tearing his position to pieces, saying that uh, even if there was a bomb aboard, the plane should have diverted to Vilnius, not to Minsk. And noting that both Hamas and Switzerland, the two countries involved in the supposed bomb threat, have denied knowing anything about it. I mean, publicly, Russia says it backs Belarus and Lukashenko has accused the West of hybrid warfare. What do you think the next developments will be? Russian media are saying that that Belarus is preparing a a set of counter-sanctions. Almost amusingly, uh, one of them apparently is to ban Western airlines from Belarusian airspace, which, as of course the airspace has been banned to Western airlines in any case, is a bit like saying, you know, I wasn't going to let you in anyway, so sucks boo. Uh, It's perhaps a little bit infantile. But Belarus's ability to respond forcibly, as Lukashenko has promised, uh, to these Western sanctions is actually very limited. I suspect on the Belarusian side, we'll see quite a lot of posturing, but not a great deal of action. On the European side, uh, the EU has promised economic sanctions to back up uh, the the flight ban. But it's not at all clear uh, how these will be constructed. You see, the problem is that Belarus is already heavily sanctioned following the blatantly fraudulent elections there uh, last year that returned Lukashenko yet again to power. To tighten the the screw, uh, to impose further economic sanctions without actually hurting the long-suffering people of Belarus rather than the regime will take considerable craftsmanship. And I suspect there will be a period of reflection as the European Union works out exactly what it's going to do. We talk a lot about the rules-based international order and there's been a lot of tough talk from Western leaders this week, but will any of that actually help Roman Protasevich be freed? Very sadly, I think probably not. It was quite clear from Lukashenko's address yesterday uh, that he thinks he is the victim. Uh, He believes that the uh, protests against his elections were all instigated by hostile Western intelligence services. And he believes that Protasevich is a key enemy. Protasevich told other passengers on the flight that he thought he faced the death penalty. Horribly, I fear he may be right. Well, also with me is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. And Michael, the EU had once hoped to lure Belarus away from Moscow's orbit. Presumably that ambition has now been abandoned. Uh, well, it's certainly put on hold probably for a long time. I mean, the EU has been graduating its policy towards Belarus since 2010. And it's it's been a mixture of sanctions, then releasing sanctions, offering aid, in this case now suspending aid. In a way, I think the EU probably faces the prospect that it cannot stop Belarus becoming pretty close to Russia and being totally dependent on Russia. And and in the EU's mind, of course, is always the Ukraine example, because in 2012-2013, EU policy was not very clever towards Ukraine and and had quite a lot of responsibility for the instability which then created the circumstances in which the Russians grabbed Crimea and, and began to interfere in the Donbass region. And so they've gone very carefully with Belarus, but I think effectively the EU is losing any real influence it had over Belarus. But this incident, Remember, is thoroughly an EU incident because the flight that we're talking about was between two EU countries, between uh, Baltic, the Baltics and uh, Greece. 
and it was an EU registered carrier. So, you know, this really does reflect upon the EU's ability to maintain safe passage in the airspace that it's responsible for. Yes, indeed. And uh, John Everard, I mean, this episode does seem to highlight that autocratic leaders can increasingly be confident they can get away with things like this. This is the real worry. Uh, The instance itself is terrible. The precedent it sets is even worse. It emboldens bad behaviour. And somehow the international community has to work out a way of responding forcibly uh, to these gross breaches of international law. Uh, I just hope that something can actually be put in place, but uh, it will be difficult. The relationship between Putin and Lukashenko, John Everard, um, it it does look like from now onwards they will become closer and more repressive. Is that how you see it? I suspect that Putin is livid at being effectively dumped in it by Lukashenko. Putin knows that if he condemns this hijack, uh, then geopolitically he loses out. Lukashenko will simply throw a tantrum and uh, all Russia's patient work in Belarus uh, is thrown to the winds. If, on the other hand, he fails to condemn it, then Western airlines will start to worry about flying through Russian airspace, which would cause huge inconvenience, including to Russian citizens, and would cost Russia a great deal of money. And of course, Putin has got his summit with President Biden coming up. So from his point of view, the timing couldn't be worse. So although Lukashenko is clearly looking for further uh, support from Russia, there are real constraints on Putin and uh, there will be some hesitation. Some interesting thoughts there. John Everard, thank you very much for your time today. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrep. The truth is that senior ministers, senior officials, senior advisers like me fell disastrously short of the standards that the public has a right to expect of its government in a crisis like this. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that. The Prime Minister's former Chief Advisor Dominic Cummings telling a committee of MPs that lives were lost because of failings at the top of government during the coronavirus pandemic. But his criticisms went further, arguing Britain is dangerously unprepared for a host of potential threats. One of the other things very high on the risk register is the anthrax plan. What happens if terrorists attack with anthrax? Personally, um, I would have... um, I would be extremely concerned that that plan is as robust as it, as it should be. I can't go into any details of it, but I think there's no doubt that everything like that needs the most incredible, careful thought. You know, this country spends tens of billions of pounds on national security issues, but we don't spend anything like the right amount of money or engage the right kind of people involved. So what lessons can we learn from the mistakes made since the start of the pandemic and how likely is it that we will learn them? Elizabeth Braw is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has written about preparing for the next global crisis. She told me it's clear the lessons from a pandemic exercise staged in the UK five years ago were ignored. What happened was that the UK government was actually quite proactive in, in, in conducting this pandemic exercise, which is what, what it was. There were lots of lessons lessons for how the, the government should, uh, what, what the government should pre- do to prepare for, for exactly such a contingency. And then 
then this this whole exercise, the, the lessons learned from it, uh, just disappeared uh, onto a shelf somewhere, and, and and no lessons were learned. And then when when a pandemic appeared, there was absolutely no expertise, no preparation in how to handle it. That's why we had such chaos in the UK when 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 COVID arrived in the country. Yeah, and the military, of course, stages exercises to examine different scenarios and problems that might arise. Um, do governments do the same? Are they getting it right, do you think? Governments conduct uh, tabletop exercises, as they are called all the time. They go through various scenarios. But the point is how you implement the lessons learned. And, and the point is also that it, it, considering how small a government is in any liberal democracy, including the UK, it can't just be the government exercising. It has to be for example, the private sector as well. Imagine if the UK had exercised regularly, as the armed forces do, as you pointed out, uh, the armed forces regularly exercise warlike scenarios. Imagine if the government regularly exercised uh, scenarios, contingency scenarios, situations below the threshold of war, not just within the government, but involving the private sector. Then when such a scenario occurs, uh, the private sector and the government alike would know what to do. And Elizabeth, the military was called in when the country was already deep in crisis. Is there an argument for involving them at an earlier stage to take advantage of their crisis planning skills? It is incredibly useful to have fantastic armed forces, uh, as the UK does. I think the temptation is to to say um, with regards to or to think with regards to any scenario. Well, if push comes to shove, we can call up the army in particular, and and they'll they'll come in and help, which is what they did. But that can't be the the, the answer to to contingencies that are not that don't involve uh, sustained use of of military force, which is what the armed forces are supposed to to handle. Uh, because it, it, it makes us lazy in, in, in preparing. And we have to remember that, that in a crisis, the armed forces could actually be needed uh, for the tasks that they, that, that, uh, they do focus on. Uh, their focus is not uh, transporting oxygen around the country for pandemics. Their focus uh, is to, uh, to defend the country. Because the UK armed forces are so good, it, it breeds a certain uh, amount of laziness. Uh, but... Uh, I think, uh, again, COVID has been a useful reminder to say that, oh, uh, maybe it's, it's not sustainable to, to always turn to the armed forces in a crisis. And you've said that one problem is that governments plan for the last crisis rather than the next one. Do you think they lack the flexibility or imagination to envisage what might happen in the future? The, the challenge that we have is, is that... It, crises other than wars are very hard to predict. Pandemics are, in a sense, easy to predict because a pandemic is a pandemic. But uh, when it comes to crises that uh, our adversaries might cause, um, if you're a hostile country wanting to cause meltdown, wanting to cause mayhem in another country, then you, you just need to be innovative. That country can't uh, can't outthink you, as it were. But the, the, the point is that the, the result, the effect on our societies is always the same, which is disruption of, of vital services. So you can prepare for that. In a sense, you, you don't even have to, to think that far. Uh, you can just think about what, it, what is it that we need for our society to function relatively seamlessly. It's uh, internet provision, it's water, it's energy. All of those things can be disrupted by either by Mother Nature or by an adversary. So if you think along those lines, I think 
even if we don't know what the next crisis will be, we know what it is that 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 we really need to maintain. And, and on that basis, we can prepare for the next crisis. Dominic Cummings said we need a sort of dictator to oversee crisis planning with wide ranging powers. Do you think that would make a difference? Well, uh, I wouldn't call that person a dictator. That That's a uh, uh, a sure way of, of making sure uh, uh, that that position will never be created. But what I have proposed in the past is having a, a civilian commander-in-chief. That's something that, for example, Sweden did during the Cold War. Sweden had this fantastic total defense. It had a military part and a, and a civilian part. And, and just as the military had its commander-in-chief, the, the civilian part had its commander-in-chief. And I think you might call it that person a resilience czar or a crisis czar, somebody like that. A position like that could be really useful. So, uh, for example, a respected member of the House of Lords, a respected former uh, business leader, somebody like that could be put in charge of civilian resilience, uh, either before a crisis or during a crisis, or ideally both, so that that would be one person in charge with a clear chain of of command mirroring the, the military chain of command. Elizabeth Braw speaking to me earlier. Well, let's pick up on that with Professor Michael Clark. Michael, one problem seems to be that emergencies like the pandemic appear as far off complex threats and there's usually a more immediate problem demanding government attention. Yes, there always is. Um, you know, the definition of a crisis is time, threat and surprise. There's always, time is always telescoped. There's a threat of something and it usually comes as a surprise. And so some systems are more easily put into crisis than others. And most systems, most decision-making systems, whether in business or in government, they can usually deal with one crisis, but they find it very difficult to deal with two crises simultaneously. And of course, the COVID crisis was a public health and an economic crisis together. So you had this combination of, of two crises. And bringing the military in, as Elizabeth Braw said, is you're bringing in an organization that's very good at planning and is also very good at, at changing its plans when it needs to. The military assumes that the plans will go wrong and it replans all the time. So that's the benefit of it. But you've still got to deal with the psychology of the decision makers, because under the pressure of of events, they they go, in a sense, they go blind. There is so much information out there. This is one of the things that Dominic Cummings was talking about. You've got to get ahead of the information. But most politicians, when they're confronted by massive information, effectively, they go blind. They don't know what the situation is. And sometimes they get frozen because of that. And other times they become hyperactive and act for the sake of it. So, you know, crisis psychology is very interesting. People in the military are normally better at handling that crisis psychology because it's what they do for a living. Mm. Michael, stay with us. When plans for a new special operations brigade were confirmed earlier this year, the army said it would operate in high threat and hostility environments. Now it's reported its first deployment will be to Somalia to boost the country's battle against jihadists. Speaking to the Atlantic Council think tank, the chief of the general staff, General Sir Mark Carlton Smith, outlined what he wants the army's new ranger regiments to achieve. In the course of this next 12 months, I want to stand up the first Ranger Battalion in order to act as that vanguard of the Army Special Operations Brigade. And I want to see it deployed potentially in East Africa, you know, by this time next year in support of our regional East African partners. Professor Michael Clark, it's reported we'll get confirmation of this deployment at the G7 summit in Cornwall next month. Britain has been training the Somalian military, but this implies they need more active assistance. Yes, that may well be true. Uh, the situation in Somalia is 
is not very good. It, it was improving actually the last few years. And then in this last 12 months, the, the internal security situation in Somalia is, has got worse. And in fact, I mean, this, the, you know, the Somalian army, they've been firing at each other on the streets of Mogadishu in the last uh, week to 10 days, which is not a good sign. So the, there is a lot more for somebody to do in Somalia. Whether the Brits should step up to do more, of course, will be quite a sensitive decision. It's only a few months since US forces were withdrawn from Somalia prematurely, if these reports are anything to go by. Yes, and everyone said that. When the US uh, pulled out under President Trump's, almost his last act to to draw in America's military horns uh, throughout uh, the Africa, and Asia region, everyone said this will be bad for Somalia. And so it's proved. It takes away a sort of political guarantee that America cares what happens in Somalia. And that's that's one of the reasons why things have gone poorly. There is something to hope for. This week, the Somali government are saying that they have agreed dates and and, uh, method to hold elections, which have been delayed since last year. If that goes ahead and Britain can help them hold those elections, then we might help to get Somalia back on the right path again. But it's a very dangerous moment for Somalia, for East Africa in general. Now, the Chief of the Defence Staff is among those backing calls for more research into whether MDMA, the scientific name for ecstasy, could help veterans struggling with PTSD. A study in the US has already suggested that in tandem with psychotherapy, it can have a big impact. American doctors could be allowed to use MDMA in treatment by 2023. Here, a team at King's College London wants to stage its own study. Professor Alan Young would lead it. The therapy aims at helping participants to revisit the traumatic memories and psychologically process these intense experiences without feeling overwhelmed and overly distressed. And this is greatly facilitated by the effects of the MDMA, which I always think of as you know, helping to unlock some of the psychological wheels in the brain which are stuck. Among the British veterans hoping they might one day benefit is Martin Wade, a former lieutenant colonel who suffered from PTSD since serving in Afghanistan 15 years ago. For me, it would mean the world to get a chance to try this type of therapy, having tried so many other therapies for over the last 11 years. And of course, there are many veterans far, dare I say, worse off than me who would really benefit from this type of treatment. I find it so difficult to deal with even the most mundane daily demands, you know, where I jump at the the slightest sound and it's rather like swimming in treacle and just trying to keep your head from drowning beneath that darkness. It's it's a daily struggle, I'm, I'm sorry to say. The charity supporting wounded veterans is arranging a UK study but is still three quarters of a million pounds short of the funding needed. Its chief executive, Gilly Norton, told me there's reluctance from some to consider the use of a psychedelic drug. I think people are worried about reputational risk. It takes a long time to start a trial. Um, we have to get home office approval for the drug. Uh, that takes two months. You know, it's just all, all that heavy regulatory approval to go through. And we've got to raise the money. You say you've got to raise the rest of the money for the trial. Some people might wonder why it's down to a charity to raise the best part of three quarters of a million pounds. I would ask the same question. <laughs> I agree. We've said that we want, we're going to do it simply because we've got lots of veterans that we look after or who come to us for help for whom we've run out of treatment options. These are all people who've done years of therapy. They've been in hospital, a lot of them, and nothing has really worked. So having run out of treatment options and then learning about this new 
potentially very good treatment option, you know, we were determined to bring it here. US studies have found two-thirds of patients made huge advances by using psychotherapy-led treatment using MDMA. Can you just explain how it works? It lowers the fear response so that it allows you, while you're doing the psychotherapy, it allows you to stay with a, a very unpleasant incident with no fear so that you can look at it, you can work your way through it, you can put it to bed if you like, you can be at peace with it. You've won the support of the Chief of the Defence Staff. How much of a difference does that make? Huge. Absolutely enormous. General Carter knows, you know, he's got a big problem. Everyone's got a big problem with PTSD and how to cure it and how to treat it. And we gave him the data to read. He talked to a lot of the veterans. He talked to the therapists. He talked to the people in America who were putting on the trials. And then he made his decision, and his decision was, we absolutely have got to do this. And you have said it would be a national disgrace if British veterans were denied treatments available from other countries like this one. How likely do you think it is that you will be successful? I am absolutely determined that these trials are going to take place. This is the hardest thing to to cure. You know, shell shock's been there since the First World War. No one has made a dent on it. There'd been no new treatment in mental health for 30 years. And along comes this treatment, which looks far better. At the moment, I think if you've got PTSD, you've got a 30% chance of getting better um, if you use conventional treatments. And veterans always do worse on conventional treatments than the civilian population, statistically. It's the one thing that I've seen that could push the dial round on the treatment of of a very, very debilitating illness. I simply can't believe that that people in Britain are not going to say, our guys have got and girls have got to have this. The trials, um, you say, are scheduled to go ahead in August. If the results are positive, how long do you think it'll be until psychotherapy-led MDMA treatment is available to veterans? A lot of that will depend on the MHRA. So down to the regulatory authority. Exactly. The FDA um, are looking to licence it, I think, in 2023. If the results are good, I hope that we will start treating as quickly as possible. We've got hundreds of very, very, very desperate people. So the sooner we start, the, the better it is. Jilly Norton speaking to me earlier. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. In a brand new, original BFBS podcast. I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq, like beyond angry and tears rolling down my eyes. What is it that drives people to be brave? We knew that he didn't have that long to live, so we had to continue. To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I guarantee you that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us. Hear from the men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. They talk about what happened, what they went through at the time, and how they feel about it now. TM Meadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.